Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace that you've given us in your son Jesus, and the sacrifice of the cross, and his death, his burial, his resurrection. And that is the ultimate defining factor of who we are, is the accomplishment of God, infused in the heart of men by the faith that you've given us in your son Jesus Christ, who we exalt him and lift him up this morning. And we acknowledge his goodness, his faithfulness, and his victorious nature over the uh, consequences of sin and destruction and chaos in the life and the world and the mind. And Father, we just thank you, God, that you are high above all things that are uh, in this life and in our minds and our hearts, that you are high and lifted up, and we, we uh, set our eyes on those things that are above, which is you. So I ask that every heart would be opened, every mind would be made clear, every eye would see through the uh, manifest presence of Jesus that the hand of God would be upon our hearts this morning. We would hear you, we would know you, we would manifest you, we would resound and praise unto you, God, as we hear your word, as we, as we move forward in what you've called us to do and be. God, I lift you up and I'm eternally thankful for your goodness. And Father, I thank you, God, that you are faithful beyond words that you are faithful beyond words, that your mercy endures for forever and you have not left us, you have not forsaken us, and you have not abandoned us even in our worst times and our worst moments, Father. We lift you up, God. We praise you. Just, just stretch your hands to him and begin to thank him right now. Tell him thank you for something that he's done in your life. God, we just thank you. We lift you up and we ask you, Father, for to be blessed this morning. We acknowledge you. We get out of our head. We get out of our space. We get out of our element. We get out of our circumstances and we seat ourselves next to you in heaven where we're we're already placed according to scripture that the place that you've called us to be and to live and move and have our being is in you not in the circumstances of how things are going not how we feel not how the nation's going but God in you we have our rest and our being we praise you and we thank you God that you are high and lifted up over your people and in our hearts and we thank you for these things and we bless you father in Jesus name we ask this in in, in your name amen Amen. You guys can be seated. Thank you for, for um, leading us this morning, guys, in worship. Um, I felt like I just wanted to move forward here because I have something that's pretty, um, pretty important on my heart. And um, I have also a couple of things that I really need your attention for just real quick. Um, so if you guys can, like, uh, stay with me as the kids are going back, that's, that's great. If you want to send them back, you can. If you want to keep them with you, that's totally fine. Um, but as, as uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready here, we're getting ready for a new year, and uh, as is everybody else, and we're going to have a lot of things, hopefully, that are changing, are going to be a little bit different this next year as far as um, how we go about things and, and things we're going to be doing that I felt like the Lord has given us liberty and grace to move forward in. And uh, if anybody would like to hear those types of things in the vision of the church, you can, you can just get with me on that. Uh, I felt like the Lord gave me a few years ago a time frame to go by in order to build a progressive movement um, to be able to launch uh, into the kingdom and the community. And I think we're at that point now. So uh, we're going to be doing some things, and I, I'm going to offer some things to people who want to be involved. But before we get to that point, um, this is a, it's a tough time of year because everybody's so busy and it's so hectic and family can be so difficult sometimes and everything can be chaotic. And we understand that. And we've tried to have service over Christmas and New Year's in years past, and it just never worked. Everybody's always out of town, or they're sick, or, or they're with family, and um, and so we've we've made a decision as a body just to, for the next two Sundays, we're not going to have service here. We've done that for the last few years, so that would be on the 26th, and on the 2nd. 
all right? Um, so the 26th and the 2nd, which is the next two Sundays, there will be no Sunday service. We are going to have our home groups. Um, our home group is what I call the church. Not that you guys aren't the church. I'm just saying that it's more of a biblical representation of, of meeting together and sharing hearts and everybody having a psalm, hymn, and a spiritual song. So everybody participating and just fellowshipping and sharing life together, eating together, praying together. And uh, we're going to carry those on throughout the new year, and we're not going to stop those. The only one that's, that's paused right now is, at, is Mountain Home as uh, Bruce and Lori are readjusting some things over there for our sake and uh, to make it uh, more facilitable for uh, 2022. But the Thursday home group and the Monday home group here in Harrison will still be going on. We encourage you to come to that during this downtime so that you have fellowship with the body. You're not completely isolated for two weeks. Uh, it's crazy to me as a pastor of over 25 years that I watch people not come to church for two weeks and everything falls apart in their life and then they don't come back. <laughs> I don't understand that. But don't do that. Come hang out with us. Come fellowship with us. Come uh, get the word in your life and come hang out with people and, and, um, and fellowship with the body, okay? So you're welcome for that. And uh, I will personally, I, we're not going to do a big corporate thing, but I'm personally going to be up here on New Year's Eve uh, at about 6 o'clock. If you guys want to come up here, you can, but I'm just going to be praying and uh, there'll be some time for reflection, just maybe for a couple hours, six to eight or so. Uh, we'll have some coffee here. We're not going to do, do a big food thing, as far as I know. And if you don't want to come, that's fine. But I will be here, and I'm going to um, just take the time just to kind of pray and seek God and, and offer um, uh, this next year to him and, and just be there for that. So if you guys want to come hang out with me and do that, you're welcome to do that. It will be on the 31st at 6 uh, p.m. So if you have something else going on, Totally understandable, right? We good? Okay. Uh, turn, to, turn to Isaiah chapter 66. Um, I really want to end this year with the understanding of how God views us. Because I feel like if we get out of sync with him on how he sees who we are, we begin to project that same dissatisfaction back to him. And that affects the relationship that we have with God. And so I've said this a lot, and, and I may repeat a few things, but I feel like bears repeating. But our relationship with Abba a lot of times is as deep as our ability to understand who he is. And to do that, we have to understand who he is in us. We didn't choose him. He chose us. If God values something, it's not wise to devalue what he places value upon. And if he chose us, it means that there's something of value in our life. It doesn't mean that we're better than him or anything else. What it means is, is that God sees something that we don't see. And our relationship with God must be based upon what he sees in us, not what we see in us. If our relationship with God is based upon what we see in ourselves and what we see in our circumstances, the only relationship we're going to have is going to be focused around sin. I do not want it said of me at the end of my life that my entire relationship with God revolved around the problems and the sins in my life. I want my entire relationship with God to be revolved around the goodness of the Lord, His blood and His faithfulness to me regardless of where I was and where I've been. I want Him to be the center of my relationship, not the failures and the shortcomings and the sin of my life. I don't want the reason why I come running to Jesus every time is because something's going wrong. Though that's a good time to come. 
there's never a bad time to come to the Lord, ever. <laughs> but my point is, is that I want us to understand how God sees us, and I want to end this year with understanding that what God values, we must begin to value. And so I want you to turn to Isaiah 66. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. And Jacob, I apologize, we're going to be going to a whole lot of verses today. So have your little pointer finger ready. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. And I'm not sure what version you got up there, it doesn't matter. Heaven is my throne, earth is where I place my feet. Where is the house that you will build for me? And where is the place of my rest? Next verse. For all those things that you're going to use to build my house is what he's saying. My hand has made. All those things exist by me, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is of poor and contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. So in Isaiah 66, God's posing a prophetic question to the church, and he's asking them this. What are you actually going to do for me? Now that sounds like a really good sermon, and a lot of religious people take that the wrong way, because what they're going to come away from is that you need to build the house of the Lord. You need to do something for God. But the whole context of this entire chapter here, especially these two verses, is God saying, you don't have anything good enough to build for me. What you do have and what you are going to use to build for me, I already made it. So why do I need you to do and improve upon it? In other words, it's a rhetorical question. How are you going to give me something that's already mine? How are you going to build something for me when you can't even contain me and the things that I built can't even contain me? You with me? So God wants a place to live. And it's not up to us to build that house. You with me? So I would just kind of maybe venture out on a limb and say that where God wants to live is also what God values to live in. You with me? If you had an unlimited resources and you were going to build a home, that home re would reflect the nature and the character and the, and the likes and the dislikes of who you are as a person. You're going to have everything in that home revolve around everything about what you desire, true or not. If somebody wrote you a blank check and said, build a house, it's going to, it's, it's, every house in here would be different. You realize that? Everyone would be a different color, a different shape, a different design. But when God begins to build his house, he doesn't need man to interfere. God has his house built one way, and that's the way he wants it built. And if you and I don't like it, it doesn't matter. We have to live where he lives. And we have to let him live in what he wants to live in. You with me? Okay. Next verse is Psalm 127. Psalm 127 verse 1. It says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And except the Lord keeps the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless God builds his own house, everybody who attempts to build that house is going to be working for nothing. See, religion will tell you that it's your job to give God a place to live. 
Relationship says that you need to let God choose where he wants to live. Where is that? Who's the house of God? So whose job is it to build the house? Yours or his? What improvement are you going to do in your own life and in your own nature that's going to actually catch the attention and the impression of God? What are you going to add to who you are that he already made that's going to be any better and cause him to say, you've beautified my house? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Unless God builds the house, those that labor, labor in vain. Religion will tell you you've got to do this and this and this and this. Why? So that God can be comfortable in your own existence. Does this make sense to you? And we even carry that in the New Testament reality. Some of us come to church each week, and our worship and our ability to connect with God is dependent upon how we lived our life the week previous. If we've had a hard week, we come in under the spirit of oppression. If we've had a, a week where we've slipped up into sin, we come in under condemnation. And we allow the entire relationship with God to be focused upon what we have done wrong instead of what he has done right. The house, right, has been looked at, and because we don't value the house based upon what we've done with the house, we feel like God doesn't inhabit the house. Are you with me? Okay. That's kind of iffy, but I'll take it. In Acts chapter 7, starting in 47, it says uh, Solomon built the house of God. Solomon built God a house. However, verse 48, the most high God does not dwell in temples made with hands. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, and where is my place of rest? Has not my hand made all of these things? See, what God chooses to inhabit, you have to let him inhabit. If you don't let God live where God wants to live, then God can't have a relationship with you. Not because it's on his end, but because it's on yours. Does this make sense? So unworthiness devalues the sacrifice that was required for my restoration. When I base everything upon what I've done wrong and what I've, what I've screwed up in or how everybody's hurt me or the church has hurt me or my, my husband or my wife or my pastor or my kids or whatever, when I make everything about the circumstances of life, unworthiness begins to creep in because I begin to value and determine and uh, identify myself with the things that have gone wrong in my life. And then when I value those things, I become unworthy in the eyes of God. Therefore, I am not built to be God's house. And I'm not worthy for God to inhabit me. And I'm not worthy for God to love me. Even though in your own theology, you'll say, oh yes, God loves everyone. In your practicality, you don't ever receive that love because you don't feel worthy of it. It's, it's one thing to come to church and have correct doctrine, but doctrine doesn't change character. Just because you believe something to be true intellectually doesn't mean that you respond in posture of reflex in your heart to that same theological truth. I know lots of people who believe the, the correct doctrines, but, but their lives are absolute just wrecks. You with me? Okay. 
So, so the cost of devaluing myself comes at the expense of God himself. The cost of devaluing myself costs, is at the expense of God himself. If I devalue what he values, it's at his expense. I'm minimizing the value of the blood of Jesus when I don't believe that value is for me. Everybody that's ever run away from God at some point in your life, you've ran from God as a Christian, you've ran away from God. The only reason you ran away from him is because you believed the lie of unworthiness. You devalued yourself so much, and when you devalued yourself, you also devalued the power of the blood of Jesus. Because God so joined himself to us in John 17 by the cross that when we devalue ourselves, we devalue him. When we take upon the the nature of unworthiness, we're causing him to take upon the same nature. You with me? Okay. So unworthiness disguises itself as humility. That somehow you have to let your sin beat you so low before you come back to God. And that's called humility. No, that's called abuse. The only fruit of unworthiness is self-pity. Jesus was the most humble man on the planet, but he was never in self-pity. If your humility is leading to self-pity, then you're not in humility, you're in, in, in unworthiness. Does this make sense to you? Okay, there's a huge wall. I'm, we're going to break through it here. See, true humility has the courage to be valued at the measure which has been set upon itself by a higher authority. True humility has, has the ability. It values itself. Um, it, it has the courage to be valued at the measure which has been set upon itself by a higher authority. That's what humility is. It values itself based upon an authority who is greater than itself that says you are at this measure. Humility is to come up into the things that God says that we are, not to debase ourselves into the things that we aren't. Humility, actually, in, in an outlived lifestyle, when you see humility in action, it actually looks more like courage and arrogance than it does uh, unworthiness and, and, and low posturing. Go look at how many times Jesus' external ministry caused everybody to look at him in a way that was arrogant, that was angry, that was offensive. It's more often in that case than when he is coming low, even though the whole process was him coming low. Humility in its outward form is often called arrogance by those on the outside. Because humility has the right to be able to accept of itself what God says about it. And when someone stands up and says, I don't care what you say about me, I know what God says about me, they say, that's arrogant. Do you realize that the crowds weren't there whenever he washed his disciples' feet? They never saw that part of him? 
The Pharisees never saw that side of Jesus, did they? You know the side that they saw? Who, are, who do you think you are speaking by your own authority? Who gives you the authority to do these things? Who gives you the authority to say these things? Who gives you the authority to cleanse the temple and kick everybody out and whip people on their way by and kick over the tables? What, by what authority do you have these things? See, true humility was the fact that he never had to respond to the question of where he got his authority from because he was so solid in the authority he got, he didn't have to give an answer for it. That's humility. But it looks like arrogance. Because the devil, when he got into society, he turned everything 180 degrees on its head. And now what we call humility, God calls pride. And what the world calls pride, God looks at and sees as humility. Because it's all a posture of the heart. And so when someone calls someone arrogant, they're stepping into territory that they have absolutely no clue of. Because who knows the heart of man but the Lord? Be very careful if you ever look at somebody and go, that guy's just arrogant. So many times we project things onto people because it's, if, they act, if we acted the way they're acting, it would be arrogance for us, so therefore, ergo, it must be arrogance for them. So we're projecting our own uh, broken identity onto someone else, assuming that if we did those things, that I would be an arrogance, so therefore, they must be. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did to Jesus. See, what God values, we've got to value. What God says is reality, we've got to walk in as reality, whether it causes the world to hate us or not. So, you know, in religion, it's real hard because how are you going to be confident in what God tells you to do without looking arrogant in your confidence? I've never figured that out. People who want to label me as arrogant, it's like, okay, what do you want me to do? Walk around and apologize for every sermon I preach? If I did that, then I'm going to look like I'm not... I'm not confident when I'm speaking. Well, no, we want you to be confident what you're speaking, but we don't, want you, we don't want you to be arrogant. Well, how can you tell the difference? See, what God values, we have to value. Are you with me? See, true humility has the courage to be valued at the measure which has been set upon itself by a higher authority. In other words, you're coming up into what God says about you, and you're courageous enough to stand on that regardless of everything else in your life that's telling you the opposite, even if it's in your own head. Jesus could not walk around in public ministry second-guessing himself all the time. He had to hear the Father and do the things the Father said to do. Does this make sense? So, so, so humility has no need of recognition because it already knows it bears the highest position it can possibly bear. Humility doesn't have to say, I need power and prestige and ministry and all these things. Because it knows that in its own spirit, it's set at the highest place it's, it can also always be set at in heaven. Humility knows I can get no higher than what he's placed me. And he's placed me in heavenly places next to him. I can get no higher. So if I'm not fighting to get higher in life, if I'm not fighting to get closer to God, then I can be confident in God where I am. And because I'm at the highest place that I could possibly be set at, it means absolutely nothing to my character and my identity to serve you. To come under you. Why? Because I already know I'm set at the highest possible place because I value what God values. I am valued by him, therefore I am valuable. Well, that's arrogance. No, that's confidence. 
See, we want, what we want is a version of Christianity where we all walk around dejected and our chins to our chest and controlled and manipulable by people. You know why we want that? Because it takes people who are wolves instead of leaders and it gets you able to come into their church where they can dominate you week after week and keep your pocketbook flowing and keep it dependent upon them. See, the true thing about community is, is that you, once you finally come into the trueness of who, who God made you to be, you realize, you realize that essentially, technically, you don't need anybody else. But you want them, so you come and you be a part of them. You with me? You value people so much because God values them that you want to be around them, even though you know you could just skate through the rest of your life with your personal relationship with Jesus and go to heaven and be fine. But that's not your heart anymore because even though you are at the highest place in your faith that you could possibly ever be in, the highest place of righteousness you could ever be in because of the, of the merits of Jesus Christ, you want to be and value what God values in others. Does this make sense? Go to Luke chapter 1. I'm trying to set the stage here, so forgive me. Luke chapter 1, we're going to go to verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, an angel Gabriel came to God, or sent from God, to a city named Galilee in Nazareth, Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. This is a Christmas story, right? You guys count it lucky you're getting a Christmas sermon from me, okay? And the angel came in and said to her, Hail, you who are highly favored of the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled, verse 29, at his saying, and cast in her mind, what manner of greeting is this? Let's, let's think about this. God, God, God in this story, this is the greatest story of God coming to the earth. Because there's so much prophetic symbolism in what's happening in the next few chapters. But he comes here and he say, God interrupts our, our, our business and our lifestyle. And he comes and drops himself straight in the middle of it. In the way that we weren't expecting him to come. The Jews were expecting Jesus to come as a full grown man from heaven. Breaking open the clouds, riding on a horse and coming in and subjugating Rome. But he comes as a little baby. I mean, the vulnerability of God, that he would put himself in such a frail form, is absolutely astounding. That this is the king of all universe. This is the guy who spoke the words into existence. Jesus was the word made flesh. He was there when creation was made. He was Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. He had many different forms, and now he comes in the name of a little bitty baby. Easily broken, easily murdered, easily slain. And so he comes, and he comes through a woman. God chose this woman. I, I've struggled with this because I go through and I read, and I'm like, man, i got to figure out why Mary was chosen. Man, she, I, My mindset used to be there's something she must have done. There must have been a purity in her heart. There must have been, you know, there's a reason why God chose her. No, there wasn't a reason. I'll tell you the reason. She was a nobody. There was nothing valuable about her. In the eyes of people. Why did, why did God choose Mary to bring forth Jesus of Nazareth? 
Because Mary was a prophetic symbol of every born-again believer who would accept Jesus Christ, Messiah, as the Lamb of God, where the Holy Spirit would, be, would come into them and make them children of God, according to Romans 8, that, they, that we are adopted by the Spirit and made the sons of God. We're born again. We were born again the same way Jesus was born, by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. God chose a nobody, a nothing, with no, no fame, no fortune, no anointing, nobody in the middle of nowhere, and that's what he said, this is my house. So God valued what everybody else around did not value. This is why it says she was troubled at what his saying was. Why are you talking to me like this? Why was she troubled in her mind? Because in her mind, she was unworthy of the conversation being given. She was unworthy of the delivery of the Son of God given to her. Why would you choose me? The fact that you would ask that question is the answer. Every time I ask, you know, God, why do you love me? Why do you even love me? I don't understand. He's like, and, I, and it's the same. The fact that you ask that question is why. Because you know you're not worthy of it. Therefore, I value what you don't value, what the world doesn't value, and what I place value upon, you better learn to value. You with me? So when we're so focused on what we're not without him, we miss the plan of him within us. And we're so focused on what's on the outside. Well, I'm just this, or I'm just a teenager, or I'm just that, or I'm not valuable, or I have no power, or I have no prestige. You realize that, that a woman had no rights in Nazareth in that day? Let alone a teenage woman? None. Why would God choose Mary? No reason. Absolutely no reason. But yet our Christian life is trying to be built up in such a way that God would choose us. That we would live right and speak right and pray right and, and minister right and be this right. And all we're trying to do is build the house of God and say, look how attractive we are. Are we worthy of your presence yet in continuation in our life? And he says, none of that is going to get my attention. None of it. What house are you going to build for me? Let me ask you this. When are you going to be finally good enough? To what degree? Let's say, let's say you get whatever's right in front of you that's been holding you back and been, been challenging. Let's say you finally beat that thing. What do you think you're going to be? Actually, you actually think you're going to be satisfied then? You know what you're going to do? You're going to, you're going to move the goalpost just a little bit farther and make yourself try a little bit harder. And then when you reach that goalpost, you're going to move it back a little bit farther. And you're never going to reach the end zone because you're never going to be good enough and you're never going to value because you're not valuing what God values. God chose an empty womb that had no value to bring forth the life of his son. The same way he chose our spiritual womb to impregnate himself within us to bring forth the life of Jesus in our life. The New Testament says we're born again by the seed of God, not by the seed of men. That word seed literally means sperm. We carry the DNA of Jesus Christ of Nazareth because he chose the vessel. He chose the house. This is my house that I want to live in. You don't get to dictate whether it's clean enough, good enough, or better enough or not. You don't get to dictate. And if you try to, you're superimposing your, your idea upon God himself, and God has never bowed to anybody's idea. Do not expect him to bow to yours. He's outlived a billion people more than have tried, probably better, probably faster, smarter, and wiser, and he didn't bow to theirs either. 
God doesn't care about your theological opinion. He cares about your submission to him. Uh, all right. When we consider the body of sin without the manifest son and what he produces in our spirit, then we conjure up a spirit of unworthiness. You with me? All right, he, in verse 30, he says, you found favor with God and, and man. He says, you found favor with God. That word favor means grace, which is unmerited favor. It means a divine influence upon the heart with the, with the result being seen in the life. You found favor with God. How did she find it? She didn't. It found her. Isn't that crazy? It's, it's, it's funny to me how Jesus works. He says, he says, seek what you already have. See, those who come to God must first believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Well, how are you going to seek the God you already possess? Because in Colossians, in, in Corinthians, all these different scriptures, Paul tells us that you have everything. The world is yours. Christ is yours. Christ is God's. You own everything. You own everything. You own everything, the Bible says. The Bible says you own everything. He says, but seek me. You own me, but seek me. Why? Because the more you seek out who he is, the more you let go of who you are. And the letting go of who you are is the letting go of the unworthiness and the devaluing that causes you not to see him as he is. That was a whole lot better than your response, so I'm going to let it lay there. Let me move on. When we attempt to manufacture our own value, we lose the attention of Jesus. The religious spirit has never caused him to stop and go, wow. There's only two times that Jesus was amazed at men in the scriptures. One was a woman, one was a man. Both of them were faith that reached beyond who they were in the moment. It was a faith that was so focused on who he was and what he could do and who he is, and it had nothing to do with their circumstances, even though the circumstances brought him to them. He said, this is crazy. This is good faith. I don't have time to go into that. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. This is going down a little bit way after Jesus was born. It says, the angel came to the these shepherds here. He says, fear not, for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Verse 12, and this shall be a sign unto you that when you find this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. I think what we miss in the very beginning of Jesus coming to our existence we missed this one little thing that caused everything else, it should have caused everything else to fall in line with this. You, you, do you know what a manger was? It was a feed trough. It was a concrete stone feed trough. And they were usually very dirty. and They're not places you put a king. But you see, Jesus wasn't ashamed to lay in one of those. Do you know that he wrote his own story before he got here? We look at, I mean, some of us may look at Christ's life as a string of events that randomly happened. He responded. No, he wrote his own story all the way through. If he's the author and finisher of our faith, my Lord, how much did he author and finish his own? 
He wrote his own story. He chose how he was going to die. He custom chose those nails. He, custom, he, could, have, he could have gotten killed with, with the lopping off of his head or many different ways. But Jesus chose his own story. Everything that happened, he knew it was going to happen, including the birth in the manger. Why? Because the prophetic symbol was this. I am going to come to hearts and to wombs and to inner parts of people's lives that are dirty and nasty and have been used for by beasts of the field, which are demonic influences, and I'm going to choose that as my resting place, and I'm going to take it over, and I'm going to value what nobody else values and sit where nobody else wants to sit. And that's in you. That's in me. The manger is our heart. The place where we look at it and go, it's not worth anything. It's not worth anything but to be cast out. It's, every time I look at it, all I'm reminded of is the filth and the de- decay and the animals and the beasts. And, and he says, that's where I want to live. What house are you going to build for me? Let me build my house. Let me build you. You with me? Does this make sense to you? See, the value of the manger is not in the manger itself, but what's inside. So where's your value? It's not what's on the outside that you're actually defining yourself by. It's what? It's what's inside of you. I heard this really cool analogy the other day by William Hen's dad. But he, he, he held, what is this? It's water. So when you ask people what this is, most people say it's water. Why didn't you say a bottle? Because you're, you're, you're determining, you're defining it by what's inside. Not what's on the outside. If it's coffee, if I had a, if I had a cup of coffee up here, a, a little Starbucks logo on it or whatever, and I, you know, you'd say, what are you? You'd say it's coffee. You wouldn't say it's a cup. So then why are you defining yourself by something other than what's inside of you? Right? But, but what happens to the water if I mark the outside of the bottle and make it ugly? Is that going to cause me not to want to drink it? But somehow you think that if you get marred on the outside and something goes wrong in your life that God doesn't want to take you into himself. We define ourselves by the marks and not by the water. Our defining moments of who we are and the identity that God made us to be is the presence inside of us. Nothing else. And if you get tricked throughout your week to define yourself by any other means and any other method, your entire relationship with, with Jesus Christ crumbles into nothing. Your house will fall because it's, it's based on sand, not on him as the rock. Are you with me so far? All right. See, it took, listen, if you don't think you're valuable, it took the death of a God to birth you. And it takes the life of a God to sustain you. You need to think about that. It took the death of a God to bring you to life. And it takes the life of a God to completely and continually sustain you. A God that would die for you and then sustain you afterwards eternally is a God that places a lot of value on you. 
You know why we don't hear this taught? Because people are afraid, pastors and leaders and teachers are afraid that if you actually believe that you're worth something, that you might get into arrogance. So to offset that possibility of arrogance, they're going to keep you trapped in false pride, which is humility. What they, what they call is humility. Self-dejection, self-condemnation, self-questioning, self-doubt, self, uh, all the focus on, well, I'm never going to, I'm just a worm and I'm just a sinner. Do you realize that that's not what the Bible calls you in the New Testament? That was an Old Testament idea. Well, I'm always just going to be a sinner. That's not what my Bible says. I don't know why people quit reading their Bible. You can have a guy get up and read a scripture from the Old Testament and make you think that that's a reality, but when you start reading the New Testament reality of Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are no longer those things. The Bible says that if you believe in him, he's given you the power to become a son, not a sinner. Sons don't sin, and if they do, they find reconciliation with the ultimate son, and they're made right back righteous again, and they're no longer a sinner again. That's how the process works. Because of the value inside. The stain on the exterior does not determine the interior value. Our value is not in us becoming great or good. Our value is that he has chosen us to be his home. Whether you feel worthy of it or not means nothing to him. See, religion many times wants to offer things to God that he never asked for. That's why he got on to Martha so much. Martha was trying to make him a meal he never requested. Trying to work for God where he never said work. Do you think that just because you're busy in ministry that you're pleasing the Father? <laughs> no. No. Because many times in ministry all we're going out is replicating broken people because we can only replicate what we are. God would rather have you stay in the house and get healed for a minute before he sends you out to create more brokenness. I don't send my children out at the age of six to drive and go work the business. Yet we think, it, you know, as soon as we get saved, I mean, people want to start a ministry. Why? Why don't you learn your value? Why don't you learn to stand on your own two feet for a minute? Why don't you learn to protect your head because the devil's going to rape you when you get out there and cause you to have all this doubt and self-pity and circumstances are going to happen to you and you're going to define yourselves by them if you haven't seen the value that's inside. And then the ministry you create is just going to fall and break and crash. I mean, my God, we've got to change something. Just even in this Harrison area, there's been like four or five pastors recently who have bit the dust. That's terrible. I, I don't, I want those men restored. I don't have anything evil against the same. I just say that we need to change some things though. We need to, we need to get our hearts right. Get our heads straight about what God says about us. So in the Old Testament, there were, there were three segments to the temple of God. And we are the temple of, God, of the Lord, right? We have an outer court, an inner court, and a holy of holies, just like, the, just like the, the Old Testament temple did. Three in one. Some people have a problem with understanding that, you know, it's, it's all around us, height, depth, width. There's all these things. There's a three in one all the time. A light bulb has the, the bulb. It has the light and has the heat. Everything has, it's, there's, there's, there's three in one all around us. We're that. God's that. There's the, that's the way it is. We're made in to a temple, our body is the outer court, our mind or our soul, our emotions are the inner court, and the Holy of Holies is, is our heart where God rests, is our spirit. That place cannot be touched. 
God will not allow evil to enter the Holy of Holies. It will die on contact. That's why the devil doesn't want access to your heart. He wants access to your mind. Because he knows if he touches your heart, he instantly perishes. But if he accesses your mind, he can manipulate your heart. Because God will honor your choices even if he's on the journey with you. He'll let you take the wheel. That's where we get in trouble. Okay? So the outer court in the Old Testament was for prayer and cleansing. Okay? This is where they washed. They come in. They would, they, would, they, would, they, would, they would cleanse themselves. They would wash in the labors and the basins. They would cleanse their external bodies. They would be washed. Right? This is why Jesus washed the disciples' exterior feet. Because there's something about cleaning the external part of the body that's an indicative place of understanding that we do need to walk through this life pure and clean. Right? However, the devil knows that principle, so he uses that principle to get us into condemnation when we walk through this life not pure and clean. And so he tells us that the water is not going to do anything, that the sacrifices aren't going to do anything. You've already messed up beyond recognition. You might as well exit the temple. And that's why people kill themselves. So the outer court was for prayer and cleansing. The inner court was for sacrifice and worship. The inner court's where the sacrifices would happen. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart and a contrite spirit. The sacrifices of praise, right? Right? That happens on the inner court. That's an inner issue. There's so many times where worship doesn't go anywhere because people are allowing their inner court to be subjugated by their outer court. They're allowing how they feel to determine whether they're going to lift their hands in worship or not. Whenever God says, you lift your hands in worship and it will change how you feel. But that's why we come in and have some powerful worship services, and we have some that are just, they're, they're nothing. Why? Because people get caught up in how they feel. They're allowing the outer man to dictate the inner heart. Does this make sense? All right. The Holy of Holies, the seed of God inside of your heart. 1 Corinthians 3.16. It says, don't you know that you're the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells inside of you? And if any man defiles the temple of God, God's going to destroy this person because the temple of God is holy in whose temple you are. That's crazy. I had a guy I was talking to the other day about, you know, he was wanting to know where I stood on, on micro issues like, you know, smoking and drinking. And I was just like, bro, I mean, I'm not going to say it's going to take you to hell unless you get drunk. But I said, but why would you want to defile a temple? Why would you make excuses to put something in your body that God wouldn't put in his? Well, Jesus drank wine. Yeah, but you know what he also said? He says, I'm not going to drink it anymore until I drink it anew with you in the new kingdom. So I want to be like him. So if he's not drinking right now, guess what I'm not going to do? You'd make your own choice. No condemnation from here. I've made my choice. And he's like, well, you can, will you let people come to your church if they smoke and drink? You can come all day long. That's your business. My business is to be like Jesus. The temple of the Lord. Right? See, we are holy by what is within us. Because we're holy and because he lives within us, we should live a holy life on the outside. Not because, see, what, what religion will tell you is that you need to live a holy life on the outside so that you can be worthy of the holy life that's within. No, relationship will tell you you are holy on the inside, therefore you should also use that holiness to be and reflect what you are inside externally. 
with me? Jesus said, you clean the inside or the outside of the cup, but the inside's nasty, right? He said, you'd be better to clean the inside, and you'd be better off. That's what happened to us. But it's our responsibility to clean the outside. God's not going to tell you how far you can go with him. Everybody who chooses something to defile this external thing of their life, God will let you do it, and it will only limit you. It'll never stop his love for you. It'll never stop what he's placed inside of you, but it will limit you. And then you get, get discouraged and oppressed and depressed because of you're trying to join two worlds together, and you wonder why you're, you need medication. Because the outer man who's supposed to be one with the inner man is at odds with each other, and they're fighting one another, and that's called schizophrenia. James calls it being double-minded, unstable in all your ways. That person doesn't receive anything from God. They can't. Because they're choosing those things. But it doesn't change what he's done for them. They can turn around in a minute. Just like that. You with me? All right. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 17, it says, Because of all these things, oh, well, let's read verse 16. It says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I dwell in them, and I walk. That word walk means live and occupy in them. I will be their God, and they'll be my people. Therefore, because of these things, verse 17, come out from among them. Be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch these unclean things. I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you, and you'll be my sons and daughters. Why don't we do those things that are bad and evil? Not so that we can become holy, but because we are holy. God has made us righteous. Does this make sense to you? And when we value what he's placed within us, we're going to begin to value what he's made us to be. And then after we begin to value what he's made us to be, we're not going to want to defile it. You with me? How many of you guys have an expensive piece of jewelry? Are you going to go take it out and, and work and, and feed pigs with it on? Ladies, are you going to take your wedding ring and you're going to go out and work cows with it? And all? You take your, your ring off, don't you? Right? Why? Because it's valuable. You're not going to mix it with something that's impure. You value it. It means something to you. Does it make sense? Verse, uh, it's 1 Corinthians 6.17. It says, but he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Whoever's joined to God is one spirit. It doesn't say two. It doesn't say separate. It doesn't try to be trying to, get, trying to mesh together. It doesn't say will be meshed together. One day will be like him. It says he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. One spirit. That's what my Bible says. You can get mad at me. I'm just the messenger. If you want to go crucify somebody, you try to try to crucify Jesus. Don't know, leave me alone, right? Verse 18. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is outside of the body. But he that commits fornication sins against his own body. This is why sexual sin is so dangerous because it's not just a sin that you commit externally. It's also a sin against yourself. That's why, that's why sex outside of marriage is, is, is devastating. Because it's a sin against your own body. It carries a double weight of punishment. A double weight of depression. A double weight. And I don't care how much you want to justify it, you'll never feel right with God as long as you're doing it. Ever. You'll never have peace. Now you'll go create a fabrication of peace, which means you'll go party more or do things more or, or have more fun to try to offset how you feel about it. But eventually those things will begin to gnaw you to death. 
to the point where you won't even show up to God anymore. Because those things have their business in devaluing who you are because you're devaluing yourself. And when you devalue yourself, the enemy jumps on that and makes you feel like you're not valuable. It, it's, it, it's not that you're not valuable, it's that you are devaluing yourself. <clears throat> he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit in which you, which you have God, and you're not your own? Verse 19. Do you realize what that says? How many of you guys think that, you know, just, you know my rights, my life, my this? <laughs> oh, we need to read our Bibles. You're not your own. Bible says you're bought with a price. What was the price? The blood of God himself. There's nothing more valuable than that. Nothing more valuable than the blood of God himself. And what it took for him to be able to shed that blood was cataclysmic. Because in a spiritual form before he came in flesh, he had no ability to become bleedable. You're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Verse 20. Go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. Paul says, I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me to, you, to, to, to fulfill the word of God for you. Verse 26. Even the mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations in the past is now made manifest to his saints. Verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of his glory, this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is the mystery that was hidden from ages and generations? It's God inhabiting you as his temple. The hope of glory. What does that mean? It's the hope of him getting glory through you. It's God hoping that he is going to be able to get his own glory through you. People in the Old Testament came to the temple with anticipation. They came with excitement in their hearts. Why? Because they knew that when they came to the temple, there would be forgiveness of sin. And we look at the temple of God with disdain. We look in the mirror and we see something ugly and horrible and not worth it and defiled and, you know, lacking uh, all holiness and righteousness when the old testament jews they didn't oh i don't want to go to the temple because i'm unclean they would go to the temple because they were unclean does that make sense to you what the bible says is that when we come to god we need to come to him because he's in us we need to let him cleanse our sin and our, our things we've done wrong throughout the week and not get under slavery and bondage and iniquity and sin and depression and doubt. Why? Because we're the temple. That because we're the temple, we run immediately back to him as soon as something goes wrong in our life. Not try to get it all straight so that we can be worthy to go into the temple, but no, because what's in the temple, we run to it and we come underneath that sacrifice in that inner court and we praise him and then the blood begins to flow down over our mind and our hearts. And our spirits get returned right with inside of us and our flesh gets cleansed and we walk out of, of, of the meeting or the service of the time in prayer feeling rejuvenated and alive. Why? Because our feet have been washed, our minds been renewed, the blood of God is all over us and we can walk out just as powerful as Jesus walked out of the grave. 
God within you. You're the chosen residence of Jesus. He could have chose to live anywhere, but he chose the manger of the heart. And you can't devalue where he decides to lay his head. If all you're seeing is the, how dirty the manger is in your heart, you're never going to let him actually take the place that he died to inhabit. And if you want to keep God from what's his, have at it. But I don't suggest it because you're going to lose. Either way, you lose. The enemy's going to tell you of all these things in your life without telling you the God who inhabits it. When's the last time the enemy's hit your head and then actually said, oh, but by the way, Jesus does live inside of you. <laughs> and he did choose you. And he, did, he does live and move and have his, his being in you. No, he wants you to completely disassociate yourself from anything that's holy that's inside of you. Because if he can get you to identify with something other than what's within you, then he gets the authority to pour something else in. See, the temple represented a place to go to meet God and atone for sin, not a place to run from just because sin existed. So why are you running from yourself? Why are you running from how bad you are and how difficult things are and how bad things are and how hard things are and how horrible you are? Why, why are you... I don't understand. It's only because you believe a lie, period, period. And I don't want to stand before Jesus and have him tell me, You're, the lie was always more valuable to you than the truth. Because if you think Jesus is going to pet your flesh when you get up there, you ain't going to have any flesh to pet. He's going to tell you the truth because that's what he is. He's not going to dance around your theologies and try to be nice and be socially unawkward. I, I, I knew, I heard of a testimony of a guy who died and went to heaven. You can call this guy a liar or not. That's fine. Whatever. Here's a story. He gets up there, and God tells him, you're not, you're not supposed to be here. I, I, I brought you here to show you something. I'm going to send you back. But before I show you something, he said, you know, he called him by name, and he said, you always were a coward. And God was like, oh, my God. God just called me a coward. And he said, I knew it was true, so I couldn't argue. I wasn't offended, but I knew it was true. So you always were a coward. But I'm going to send you back, and I want you to tell my people this. Tell them I'm coming. I'm coming very quickly, and they need to get ready. He said, they already know that. He said, no, they don't. He said, they've had people. He said, I, they don't know. They don't know it. He's like, yes, they do. He said, my people don't believe I'm coming soon. See, when you get in the presence of God, he's gonna, I, don't, I don't want him to look at me and go, you know, the lie was always more valuable to you than the truth. But sadly, I would say a high percentage of Christians, that's exactly what he's going to say. Because our whole life, our whole week is dictated by what we've done wrong, by what somebody else has done wrong to us, how we've been hurt, how we've been wounded, how we've been rejected, instead of how we've been healed, how we've been cleansed, how we've been delivered, how we've been, been raised from the dead. Because we want our Christian life basically to revolve around feeling good. Go read your Bible. God never promised you would feel good about any of this. Never once did he say you'd feel good about it. In fact, many times he promised the exact opposite. We're his temple. We're supposed to run to the mercy seat where he is and allow him to wash and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Abba builds his own house. He builds his own temple. He doesn't need you to do it. He needs you 
to keep the outside clean because of how he's already built the inside. The outside is what contacts the rest of this world. The inside, he did a good job when he built it, constructed it, laid its foundation, painted it, adorned it with gold. He chose the area in which he wanted to live. God doesn't sit there and micromanage and pick me to death. Even though some Christians like to do that to me as a pastor and pick me apart and armchair quarterback, tell me how I'm supposed to run the church and preach my messages and what I'm supposed to say and not say. God never does that to me. You know what God convicts me of? My unbelief. See, people want to get into argument of terms with me. You shouldn't have said that. You need to say that this way. You need to. You want to come preach? You want to start this? You want to. You want to do your own thing? You want to build your own deal? Let me have at it. You want to come run this church? I'll sit right there, and we'll see who stays. Because it takes way more than getting up on a Sunday morning and giving your opinion to build the body of Christ. I asked the guy one that was trying to give me some corrections. He saw that he, in my life, he was wrong. But I said, well, you want to build, build your own community, go build it. He goes, oh, I wouldn't want to do that. I get crucified every week. I'm like, yeah, exactly. That's, the, that's what's happening. We need to, to, to value what God values, not what everybody else values. And they think I'm arrogant because I don't listen to their correction. I'm never going to be good enough for anybody except him. I'm not going to be good enough for your theology, your opinion of me. I, I'll never say it right enough for you. I'll, I'll say things that you disagree with. I'll say things you shouldn't have said it that way. And God's not picking apart my sermon. What he cares about is I'm laying down my life for people other than myself. I'll never be good enough for the devil. I'll never be good enough for a religious spirit. Never. There'll always be something somebody's going to be able to hurl at me. And if I stop and throw dog, rocks at every dog along the way, if you stop and throw rocks at every dog along the way, all you're going to be doing is rocking in circles. I don't have time to give my life to people who are not interested in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Those that want him, I'll lay my life down for him. Those that don't, I respect and honor your wishes and choices, and you can have your life, right? The blood of God within the temple is sufficient to cleanse the outside of the temple. What's inside of you is sufficient to take care of the external problems that, he, that you have. And when they come up, God will bring them up. He'll bring them up in such a way that he's so gentle and patient and so nice about it, and he'll just break you with his love. And you'll be like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Every time God's ever convicted me, I felt his love so powerfully strong that I just wept and wept and wept. It, never has he ever come to me and said, you need to change this, and left me without that inner drawing of wanting to come to him. That's what the devil does. He tells you what's wrong, but doesn't, doesn't tell you how to fix it. No invitation to fix it. There's always an inner check where, that draws you to Jesus when you're being corrected by the Holy Spirit. Something inside you starts to squirm and go, man, I need to come to God right now. I just can't, I can't shake this. If that's not present, then it's probably not time for you to deal with the issue that you think you're trying to deal with. Trust me, when it's time, God will bring it up. Don't offer him something he's not ready for. 
with me? All right, let me do a couple more. Uh, the Bible says that Abel's blood, or Jesus' blood speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood cried for revenge. Jesus' blood cries for restoration. So every time you do something wrong in your life, there's the blood of Jesus that's crying out from the earth, redeem and restore your people. And God hears the voice of the blood of Jesus crying from the ground in Jerusalem, redeem and restore your people. Redeem and restore your people. The pre-Adamic man, his blood cries for revenge. Jesus' blood cries for your redemption and restoration. Redeem and restore your people. How, How can anything be against you if the blood of Jesus is constantly crying for your redemption and your restoration? Such a good thought. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. What's the gate? Who's the temple? Enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. Who's the gate? You are. You're the gate. This outer man is the gate. So you make it praise. You make it be thankful. And guess what? When you're walking into the temple of God, you thank him for what he's done. You thank him for who he is. You thank him for the sacrifice. You don't come to him with all the trash and the garbage and all those things. You come excited because you know as soon as you walk into that temple, it's going to be cleansed and washed and forgiven and redeemed. That's why people wanted to run to the temple. That's why they never missed Passover. They would travel from miles and hundreds of miles to come. Why? Sin would be atoned for in the temple of God. Yeah? Unworthiness is hell's attempt to defile the temple by, by the focus of sin that enters the temple while never telling us of the blood that fills the temple. Enters gates, right? All right. I'll, I'll, I'll give one last verse and we'll close. It says Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. There's, there's a lot here. You guys can go to Romans 12 and Isaiah 57 and all the different places you can you can see where I'm talking about here but in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 it says we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus being the cornerstone in whom all the building is fitly framed together and grows into a holy temple of the Lord in whom you are built together for a habitation of God through the spirit you are the building of God that he's chosen to exist in, inhabit, and God inhabits the praises of his people, right? And the praises happen in the inner court, outside of all the chaos, outside of all the circumstances, outside of all the pain, outside of all the rejection, outside of all the persecution, the praises of God, inhabiting his praises, they happen from the inner court. They're inner sacrifices of praise. And when we begin to fill the temple of God with prayer, with praise, and with faith, God is pleased. You want to please him? Don't keep dragging your sin in an idolatrous way before him. If you drag the sin to him, put it on the cross, leave it there, and move forward. Don't worship it. Don't worship how bad you were, how bad you screwed up, how bad things were. Get up, put it on the cross, move forward, and begin to worship God again. And let his temple be filled with praise and prayer. Amen? All right. I wanted to say these things because I wanted to close this year. We, this, when we begin to think this way, 
our mindset changes. And when our mindset changes, that's actually called repentance. Those of you that stay with me long enough, you're eventually going to find out you're going to have to change the way you think to hang out with me. Because I'm constantly going to be challenging that demonic thought that's buried deep in your head. And every time you get around me, I'm going to be calling you back, calling you back. And eventually you're going to be like, maybe what, he, maybe what he's saying is true. And that's exactly what the devil doesn't want you to think. Because the moment you entertain that possibility, a whole new world opens up to you. One that's not required for you to be perfect. It just requires you to be present. Mary wasn't perfect, but she was present. Martha wasn't present. You with me? So stand, please. And just, going to take a few minutes just, just to offer your heart to God, just a simple prayer. We don't need a lot of stuff going on right now. I'm not going to give an altar call unless you feel like you absolutely need to come forward. Then we will pray for you. But I just want a, a simple repentance prayer. Just pray in your heart. You know whether this was you or not. If it wasn't, praise God. But you know whether or not you've devalued what God values. You know whether you've allowed your circumstances to dictate your relationship. You know whether you've allowed the things that have happened to you to define who you are. For example, women who get divorced and their husband leaves them, they often define themselves as unvaluable after that point. And they take on that identity. And they begin to project it everywhere they go. And then they begin to accept being a victim, which brings more abuse. All because they have, don't have a proper identity of who they are. And same thing with, with men in different situations with, with, with who they are and if they struggle with lust or if they struggle with different things. It, they, begin to de, they begin to define themselves based upon what they've done instead of based upon what Jesus has done. And that creates a big kink in the relationship. So, Father, we just come to you right now. And everybody here who who's just wants to pray this in your heart, I just ask you to forgive me, Jesus, for defiling your temple. For not valuing what you value, for determining myself as just an empty, dirty manger. Trying to be good enough for you. The fact that this season in time called Christmas that we celebrate your coming, you showed us that you're not ashamed to lay in a manger, to make your home in a place that nobody else thinks is valuable. And if that's the place that you want to stay in, and that's the place that you want to live in my heart, then far be it from me to keep you from what is yours. So I ask you to change my mindset, that you placed value upon me, and your word says that he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. And I don't have to perform for you, I just have to be present with you. And God, I'm asking right now that you would release these people from unworthiness and shame and condemnation. And that the sin that is on the outer court would not defile them any longer. That we even know by your word, Jesus, that you only cleanse the outer court. You didn't go in and cleanse the inner court or the Holy of Holies. So all we have to do is just cleanse the outer court because everything else is already pure. 
So help us by grace and favor, Father, Holy Spirit, help us to set aside certain besetting sins and things that you're whispering to our hearts to let go and to lay down. And help us to value what you value and to understand that you chose us, we didn't choose you. And we just give this to you and we give you this year. Some of you guys right now, I just want you to place 2021 on the altar. Say, God, everything that's happened, I'm not going to carry it forward. I praise you for the good things and I praise you for the bad. I praise you for the ugly and I praise you for the beautiful. I lay it upon the altar and I'm not going to carry it forward. I don't want to carry it forward in 2022. I want to walk with you and I want to value what you value. And I'm asking you, Jesus, to come and just minister to my heart and pull me back into a tighter relationship with you. And let me set myself aside for prayer and for worship. I bless this congregation, Father, and I'm asking for a greater increase of anointing and presence upon these people, that they may walk worthy of the calling that you've called upon their life, that they don't have to walk trying to be worthy, but you've already made them so. So we bless you, we honor you, we thank you. We ask for the spirit of revival, reformation, and repentance to come over this land, over this nation, over this city, over this state, and that, God, these people would be your... uh, your resource, your hands, your feet, your temple as they go out ministering and leaving the residue of the anointing of Christ everywhere they go. I bless them and I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.